Consult is a monthly podcast about software developers who work on Apple platforms to create client products. Join us each month as we talk business, Swift, Objective-C, contracts, App Store, and all things Apple. I'm your host, David Kopeck. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the February 2017 episode of Consult. Before we get into the interview, I have a couple of announcements. First off, I'm thinking about expanding the scope of the show to include consultants in other spheres of software development. I'd love to have somebody from the web world on, somebody from the Android world on, maybe even Windows. A lot of ideas. I think we've covered iOS and Mac consultants pretty extensively and pretty well. We've had some of the top people in the field on the show. I want to continue to do that so we're not abandoning iOS and the Mac. I just think it'll be interesting to compare and contrast with other platforms and what the consulting world is like on them. So look for that in future episodes. I've got kind of a personal announcement. I'm working on a new book on Swift. I just signed the contract with the publisher. Um, it's something I've been thinking about writing for about half a year, and I've already through a few chapters. It's on classic computer science problems in Swift, and it's going to be hopefully released around the time of Swift 4 later this year. So expect future updates from me um, on the podcast about that. I also want to remind you that if you want to support the show, leave us a review on iTunes. That always helps. And recommend us on Overcast or your podcast player of choice. Without further ado, let's get to this month's interview with Alan Pike. So my guest today is Alan Pike, the CEO and co-founder of Steam Clock Software. Alan, thanks so much for coming on the program. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. So Alan, take us way back. Tell us how you first got into computing. Got into computing. Well, I definitely was always obsessed with software. I guess my the my first exposure to it was my dad got a old DOS computer, not old at the time, but old now. Um, and it only had, I guess maybe had an early version of Windows, but I immediately became obsessed with just changing every setting, exploring everything that I could on that uh, on that computer. And that sort of made, I think, it apparent to everyone in the family that uh, computing was an interest of mine. And, you know, it was starting to become clear at that time. It was starting to get into the 90s that maybe that was a good thing in the future of a kid. And so I ended up getting a donated, even older computer that was about as old as I was that had BASIC on it. And that was kind of the beginning of my my software explorations. How did you decide that this was a career for you? It was definitely the origin of it was just how much fun I had. I mean, making stuff has always kind of been, like even when I was a kid, I had binders full of drawings of ideas of things I wanted to make that, of course, I had no ability to actually make. Uh, and when I started playing around with BASIC and I could actually make a thing and it actually existed, you know, that I could actually have an idea for a game and I could start actually building that, um, that it was just so exciting to me that my mind immediately started going to, and I was probably maybe 12 at the time, but my my imagination, as I guess maybe is the case for many 12-year-olds, my imagination was bold and I was already thinking of, oh, well, how could I turn this into some sort of business and or career? Did you study computer science in university? 
I did. I did. So that was, so then I was probably like 18 at that time. Um, so I'd been programming for years by that point, of course, learning all sorts of bad habits and things that didn't necessarily follow the proper laws, quote unquote, of computing science as we would learn later. But uh, by that point, by the time I got into computing science, it was m a lot of it was motivated by you know, learning some more of the theory behind it that I knew was like kind of eat your vegetables was good for me and meeting people that would build my career and getting an official piece of paper that said, yes, you do know this rather than it was, okay, I'd like to learn how to program. So where do you start after college? Um, well, so I had actually, by the time I graduated from college, I'd had a few jobs in software. Um, so I was doing my kind of playing around making games and doing stuff on the side as when I was in school, when I was in sort of elementary school and then high school. And then I started working at an internet provider, uh, in my hometown, it's like obscure tiny town in the suburbs of Vancouver. Um, and I was a tech supporter there, but I ended up actually doing some software development, doing building their intranet, which was the cool thing in the nineties, I guess, uh, or I was getting on to be maybe like 99, 2000, 2001 kind of era. And then I ended up working at a software company when I was in university. And that's what put me through school uh, was I worked basically half time and then earned my tuition uh, that I could go to school doing that. Uh, and then uh, I ended up when I graduated from university getting a job at Apple. Wow. What was it like working at Apple? It was really, it was really cool, and it was not part of my plan. Like I had always imagined that I would graduate and then go off, start my own company, and and build something of my own. But my my dream job was to work at Apple, and uh, someone t tipped me off that there was an opening. Uh, I think actually I might have seen it on that Thirty Seven Signals job board back that was back in the day. Yeah, I remember um, that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was like, oh, there's an opening at Apple, and it just kind of had my name written on it. As far as like, okay, I'm. The qualifications it was asking for was basically what I had been doing. And I was like, well, I got to apply for this. I won't get it because, you know, I'm just me, but whatever, you know, I'll at least try. And then when they reject me, I'll go start my own thing. Uh, that was the idea anyway. Now, you worked on the iWork team while at Apple, right? Yeah. So originally it was iWork on the Mac. Uh, and then that moved into the whole company kind of got absorbed, not the whole company, but a huge number of people got absorbed into the iPad effort uh, when I was there in the sort of 2009 era. Um, and uh, so then I ended up working on the iWork for iOS project, which was a fun endeavor. It was a, a sort of all hands on deck situation. A lot of uh, hardcore JavaScript later on. Yeah, and actually it was kind of the inverse time-wise of the JavaScript is what got me hired, strangely enough. You think of Apple as mostly hiring people that are building native code, but because they didn't have a, a huge amount of depth in the web uh, realm in that in that time, um, and they were always looking for more, obviously there's a lot of opportunities on the web, and so they hired me actually as a JavaScript developer, and then when it became the all-hands-on-deck iPad situation, then it was like, okay, you're learning Objective-C starting today, and we don't have time to train you because we're busy writing the apps ourselves, and so uh, that's kind of how I got into the, the native development uh, world. So how do you end up starting Steam Clock Software? Uh, so after a couple years of working at Apple, which, you know, I, I, as I had said, wasn't kind of not my original plan, but I felt super uh, lucky to have had that opportunity. Um, it was kind of clear to me that although it was a great place to work for somebody that wants to be sort of a cog in a machine, so to speak, like, 
you know, a very shiny, beautiful machine that creates amazing stuff, but that someone who wants to be one of many, many people um, in a business, that that's great. But for me, my uh, the things that I enjoy are some design, some development, some of this, some of that. And so uh, I knew that starting my own thing made sense for that. And the thing that actually triggered me to go and actually start Steam Clock was that for years I'd sort of envisioned that one day I wanted to start a business with um, this, uh, I guess it started as acquaintance, became friend of mine, Nigel Brook. And he uh, had started mentioning to me in passing, oh, you know, I'm thinking of maybe leaving my big corporate job and starting something. And I'm like, oh, and you know, I've been thinking about that too. And so it ended up being not a start something because we have this amazing idea, but start something because we found a co-founder that we wanted. And in a lot of ways that can end up being more important than whatever idea that you start with. Tell us a little bit more about the relationship between you and the co-founder. Um, so we actually, it's unusual. Often people will ask me, oh, how do you meet somebody to start a business with? And my advice is always, uh, you know, go out and meet people, get to know people, and then uh, sort of build from that rather than um, sort of being able to interview someone. Because Nigel actually ended up, I met him because he was married to my drama teacher in high school. And that is wow. not, uh, yeah, it's not really repeatable advice. I'm as well, you know, just <laughs> go back to your drama teacher in high school and then meet the, who they're married to. Um, but it ended up being that when I was in high school, I was actually in the theater program. And part of that program is that you would go off and do some work experience in theater, which the sort of drama teachers would organize. But my drama teacher was like, well, I know you're into computers and software, so rather than setting you up for a theater position, which is not going to turn into your career, my husband is a senior programmer at this game development company, so how about you do something with him? And of course, I was like, this amazing, my mind's blown, this is the most exciting thing of all time when I'm like 16 or 15 or whatever. And so I actually spent a week uh, going into the office there at, at uh, Radical Entertainment, which is acquired by Activision by then, I believe, and... Uh, Working on uh, working on a game, just do being doing being a little intern uh, for a week, which was a very formative experience. And so I got to know him through that, and then we stayed in touch, doing some sort of just fun theater stuff on the side, and just through friends of friends relationships and stuff like that. And then uh, when the time came that we were both looking for something, the conversation happened. So anyone who reads your blog knows your interest in game development. It sounds like this has been a thread that's kind of gone in and out of your life. How has game development at all impacted your career? If it's at all. been a huge effect. Oh, definitely a huge effect in that it's provided a motivational um, edge to what I do. I've never... I'm going to run it through my head. Can I make the claim? I've never made a single dollar from game development. I don't know if that's strictly true, but it's like an infinitesimally small amount of money. Actually, that's not true because I, when I was a kid, I made a game on basic and I put it onto floppy disks and I would sell them <laughs> to my friends for like $5 and the floppy disk cost like $3. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. But it's never sustained my, my work. I've never, it's never paid my bills, but it's been something that I've long done on and off. And there's some people that I really respect and looked up to that have the same sort of mental model around making games. Uh, Nevin Mergen is, uh, sure. is a good example of that. As somebody who, uh, with his uh, sort of co-founder, so to speak, uh, his partner in crime, Matt Comey, the two of them have made games for years as side projects. And it takes a lot of time. And so they don't necessarily release a new game every couple months. 
Um, but they pour their hearts into it and they make fun things and they take crazy experiments and they try things that, you know, uh, someone who is depending on it to pay their bills maybe wouldn't be able to take those experiments. And that's always, to me, settled into feeling like the right way, at least for me, uh, to, to take on game development as part of a career because it's so hit driven and it's, it can be very unforgiving and if you just take it as something that you love and think it more the way that a lot of people think about maybe playing guitar or doing a sport or doing some of the other things that we can do to exercise our, our creative muscles, um, then it's a great way to spend that sort of 20% time. And then if you release stuff into the world and people like it, and maybe sometimes that will that'll pay off, uh, then that's great too. You know, it's funny you mentioned Nevin Morgan. Uh, this is a complete sidebar, but I have a little bit of a story about him. Um, he doesn't really know me, but um, I sort of know him in a very unusual way. When I, In 2008, I was interning at the Associated Press in their digital division, and they were working on the AP News app for the launch of the iPhone. Uh, well, the iPhone had launched already, but they were, they, were, they were working first on a web app and then later on on a native app when the SDK came out. And my job as the intern was to find um, a designer. And so Nevin had put out just a couple of demos of, of what could be done. Um, and somehow uh, I ended up setting up the interview with him. And it was kind of my job to help them make the final decision. And I don't know. It, it was his first, I think, big iPhone project. And now he's so influential in the community. So I like to think in the back of my mind, while well, I had some small, very, very small role to play in that. But what a great guy and what a talented That's designer. Awesome. Yeah, amazing. Um, so tell us more about Steam Clock. How is it structured and what are your day-to-day -day responsibilities like as CEO? Yeah, so we are a hybrid uh, consulting and uh, product development company. And what I sort of typically describe the company as is a product studio, which is not a super well-defined term, but I think it captures it pretty well, which is that we make products, uh, mobile apps. And sometimes those products are for our clients and sometimes they're for ourselves, but our whole focus and how we're structured is around how can we make the best products, uh, the best apps. And so uh, there's 10 people, uh, 10 of us or 11, depending on how you count full-time and part-time people. And uh, the structure is we spend probably about 75% of our time on client work and 25% on our internal stuff. And the internal stuff sometimes is, uh, like you mentioned, there's a game side project we've been working on. Uh, we have some music apps. We have various projects that we work on. We have some prototypes that we'll do that may or may not ship. We have some open store stuff we're working on. Uh, and then for client stuff, it's a huge, a very wide variety of things because we specialize in sort of uh, UI polish and apps that need to have a good user experience, which means that the the sort of they have the app common thread, but they're in a really wide range of industries, which is fun. Um, so that's kind of the, the basic setup of the company. And then it, my co-founder, uh, Nigel, runs uh, when we it's actually kind of funny, didn't go the way I expected when we started the company. I was expecting because he's older than me. He was old enough, old, enough older than me that he was a senior programmer that I was when I was interning at uh, Radical Entertainment years ago. And so I'd assumed, well, he's going to be, I guess, the CEO because he's older than me and he's, you know, more experienced. And I guess I'll be the CTO because, you know, we're both tech, we're both computing science people. We're both programmers. Mm -hmm. But after like a few months, I realized, well, he's the one, he's like architecting this stuff. 
And when we were like, oh, we need a logo, then I would go make the logo. And then we're like, oh, we should probably have T-shirts. Like, I get the T-shirts made. And I'm like, oh, we really need a service agreement. I get the service agreement drawn up. And so I, pretty quickly I started to realize, like, hey, I think I'm being the CEO. And so we had a conversation a few months in. I was like, are you okay with that? And he's like, uh, yeah, I don't want to be the CEO. <laughs> and that was uh, pretty funny, just like totally the unexpected accidental uh, CEO role. But it turned out to be, you know, whether or not, I've been only recently started to become comfortable with the idea of referring to myself as CEO because I don't feel like the chief executive officer of two people in a basement is, I feel like that's kind of over-aggrandizing it. I think even still with 10 people, I feel like it's maybe puts a little more weight on what I do because my what I do day-to-day is everything that is not programming and design. It's it's product management. It's project management. It's office manager. Like we have an office manager, but if there's a problem in the building or we need to find new office space or we need to expand something or we want to put up cool new art or, you know, like anything that is not the actual making of the product is, is what I'm doing. And so it's quite, uh, it's quite varied in my job. Did you have any, did you have any prior experience as a manager before this? Not much. I definitely had leadership experience in, um, various roles. And so going way back when I was in high school, I had started like a magazine kind of like the kind of lame magazine that a high school student would start. Mm -hmm. But then I would have like, my friends would like write articles for it and I would compile them. And when I was in university, I was like part of the student society there and we would do various events. And I like got elected to student government. I was the chief operating officer or something of the of the student society operations something and and so i had had a moderate amount of practice in that context and then i had a little bit of experience at the software company that i worked at when i was in university for quite a few years where sometimes certain employees that didn't have an obvious place in the group or maybe they the, their project they've been working on ended had ended then some one of the managers would say well let's give let's let alan give a chance to like manage them and have them help alan on his project because i'd had i was working on the internet there and sometimes i was kind of short on resources but i hadn't had until i started steam clock i hadn't had really the sort of hiring firing you're dependent like people are depending on you for their income uh type of management and it really is a it's a whole nother thing Yeah, we've had some prior teams on the show that have transitioned from being a couple of people to a similar size, 8 to 12 people. What's been the biggest challenge for you in in being a manager? I think... Hmm. I think my answer to that probably changes seasonally (laughs) as I kind of overcome layer by layer. Um, I think think it's a stereotype that people in software are not... um, always instinctually people, people, people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not really a problem I've had. I mean, I'm, I'm sure people that have reported to me or interact with me could maybe cite occasional times where I was maybe a little clueless compared to where I should be uh, when I was younger about people stuff. But I like people. I get along with people. I enjoy being around people. And so that hasn't been the stereotypical challenge for me. For me, it's been more about finding ways to be excellent and excel at the work when I'm not literally doing the work. Mm. So to, to, to kind of dig into that a little, when yeah. I am actually making software, then it's really obvious to me when it's working and it's really obvious when it's not working and it's really obvious how to be better at that and to practice and to learn and what to read. 
But when I am doing my management role, it's much more fuzzy and soft. And that's fine, but it makes it much more, take much more of my time needs to be thinking about the meta level of, okay, what am I doing? How am I doing it? Uh, what should I be reading? Uh, what signals should I be trying to explicitly collect from the people who report to me about how I'm doing and how I could do better? Because people, if you do a pretty good job as a manager, you do a big, it's pretty hard to tell that you're only doing a pretty good job, especially when you're, it's actually particularly bad when you're at the CEO level, because especially for me, like I don't even have a board of directors yelling at me. We don't have any investors. I don't have any, I'm not like starting as a, like a middle manager with somebody above me saying, here's your performance targets. You need this much ROI. This is your monthly budget. It's very like, as long as the company is profitable and we're growing, it's like, well, it seems like I'm doing well, but maybe I'm actually doing really horribly. And it's just that the market is doing really great and everyone wants iPhone apps. And so that's been the challenge for me is finding the way, the path to self-improvement and and all of that in a way that is not basically just kind of handed to you in the way that if you're an individual contributor, it's much clearer. Um, but it's a good challenge. Do you still find yourself digging into the code or are you starting to get further and further away from that? Definitely, I've gotten further and further away over time, but I definitely still do. Like I'm writing Swift at least once a week. I spend a lot more time reviewing pull requests rather than writing them. Um, and when I do make changes, often I particularly take an issue that, uh, like, I'll look for issues that are a poorly specified but require like UI experimentation or things that I'm particularly good at, and b are likely to probably result in a fairly small pull request. So I'm not going to end up picking it up, and then it ends up being days of work, and then I either end up getting distracted from the stuff that probably honestly is maybe a better use of my time as far as organizational value and be that as a blocking a task that someone else could do in a day. And then I end up stretching over a week because I can't actually dedicate the whole day to it. So I do, I do still write code though. And I definitely think that at least for the foreseeable future, I want to make sure. Uh, and I think it's valuable for a manager that's managing a tech company and I'm going in and I'm telling clients we can build this and this is, plausible and this is not possible on this operating system and these kind of things that I'm still thinking about it in the context of Swift 3 and not like well back in the iOS 4 API era you <laughs> could or couldn't do this and now I'm giving bad information and I'm making estimates that are bad based on that uh, so I think that's important what kind of tools do you use for collaboration at steam clock um, that's a good question we we in the scheme of software companies we are light on process. Um, we tend more, I think, than a lot of other consulting shops to, to go towards principles and communication in place of formal process. Mm -hmm. And so that leads us to lighter weight tools like, say, GitHub issues instead of Jira, even though if a client says we're using Jira and it makes sense for us to use the Jira, we'll use client's Jira. But if we're building a product of our own or a client is a startup and they don't have a process set up for that, we are more likely to tend towards tools like, say, GitHub issues. And we use um, a tool called ZenHub, which sets up whether or not you want to call them Kanban boards or agile boards or whatever, uh, ways of sorting uh, issues in an order and giving them uh, categories and boards so that people can see what's next and what they finished. Um, but kind of just the minimal amount of process that, that facilitates communication so that the process is serving us and we're not serving the process. 
And that is generally the, the sort of mentality that um, I think works well and is the advantage of a small shop like a 10-person shop rather than, say, a 1,000-person shop. You can't just say, well, everybody just do what makes sense on your project um, because eventually you end up having scaling problems and stuff like that. So um, that's definitely the kind of mentality we have around that, and that's kind of why, not that we don't use any tools, we, you know, we use BuddyBuild, for example, for almost all of our uh our projects where and that does continuous integration and then we can download a build and they do the signing and they can submit to itunes connect and stuff so we have a few tools that we do sort of we don't say you must use buddy build and we don't say oh you must use crashlytics right but we'll say well you have to have a crash reporter and you know in the past we found this is a pretty good one you can try a different one but you know let's figure out um which one you're going to use so to speak that's very interesting. How does this lightweight mentality translate into client communication? So do you ever, you mentioned that sometimes you might have a client come in and say, well, we really want you to be using Jira. Um, have you found that most clients are comfortable with, with more of a lightweight process? Yeah, we find that clients often use process as a coping mechanism for feeling like they don't understand what's happening or they're not in control. And mm-hmm. so, and, and, and not just clients in particular, but but organizations in general, it's often, uh, okay, we've seen a failing, something's fallen through the cracks, let's apply, apply more process because that's the least bad way we know how to uh, think maybe this won't happen again in the future. And so we find that when clients, like we have some fairly large clients uh, that we're allowed to talk about, um, like Arcteryx, which is, you know, a, not, maybe not Fortune 500, but like quite large organization with more than a thousand employees and Mm -hmm. so they're at the point where they do have a tendency towards process but that the times where they've felt less comfortable and more wanting to assert their process are the times where we've been doing a worse job of communicating proactively and being clear about what we're doing and what we're planning to do and what inputs we're putting into making those uh, proposals as opposed to when we've been more proactive and done a better job of being like, okay, so this is what we're seeing and here's the, how the app is doing and these are the metrics and these are our goals and what do you think of these priorities? Should we do those? And if we don't hear from them for a week, being like, hey, so it's been a week, this is what's going on, that proactive communication has always made the folks involved in the project more comfortable with having less formal process. And so you definitely, it's kind of, you know, it, Process in a lack of communication in a world where you're not getting sufficient communication, process can help. Uh, but I find that definitely that you can use that sort of proactive communication um, to make people more comfortable with a more agile, so to speak, uh, way of building stuff. Is the entire team based in Vancouver, or do you also have some remote employees as well? Uh, we're all based in Vancouver, and that started just as a uh, the two of us were in Vancouver, so let's work in the same place. But it's ended up becoming a differentiating thing about Steam Clock that wasn't originally necessarily part of the plan. But um, we are all co-located. We're all in the same office. We're all in Vancouver. And a lot of our competition isn't. A lot of our competition is spread all over the world, sometimes not even in the same, like within time, certain number of time zones of each other. And that has some advantages, uh, but it also has some disadvantages. And when we are already often not co-located with our clients, because our clients are often in Silicon Valley or New York or wherever, and so the fact that we are co-located with each other at least reduces one potential 
sort of way for things to fall through cracks and increases that communication bandwidth. And I'm super aware that you totally can make remote work and for product organizations that have a coherent culture amongst one another. And there's definitely advantages to that and hiring and recruiting advantages. Um, but we've sort of additionally, accidentally and increasingly intentionally um, cited on the uh, everyone being in the same place and building a sort of coherent culture all in one office in Vancouver. And that's been actually working really well. What's the iOS scene like in Vancouver? It's quite good. It's not Silicon Valley, but nothing knows nowhere is Silicon Valley except Silicon Valley. Um, it's good. It's definitely I get the sense in Vancouver that uh, that a lot of other cities are like this. There's a handful of kind of specialties where if you go to an arbitrary city and look for an arbitrary specialty, that there might not be much of a scene. That maybe there isn't a huge number of Haskell people in. Seattle, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there is, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but in Vancouver, there's a couple things that people are quite um, active in. And uh, one of them is mobile development. Uh, and one of them is JavaScript development. Uh, and one of them is game development. Uh, and so those are kind of my three interests, not entirely coincidentally to that, because finding people that are inspiring or doing great work in that realm that are in Vancouver like has a positive reinforcement loop with the things that I've kind of focused my career on. Um, but it's actually quite good. And so we have a couple iOS development meetups in town, one that we run and one that uh, some other folks run uh, here in town that, you know, get good speakers and, and pretty good turnouts as well. And uh, we also sometimes are able to get folks up from, uh, there's a, a very good iOS development meetup in Seattle called Seattle Xcoders. Uh, and sure. it's close enough to Vancouver that we can get some folks up uh, from from Seattle to, to give talks to. So uh, it's good. Now, I understand if you don't want to answer this, but what fraction of your clients are in the Vancouver area? I would say probably about a third, third, third between 30 and 50 percent, depending on the, the year. And have you found it a big advantage to be a local shop with those clients? Is that one of the, the factors that they mention when when they select you? Oh, yeah. I mean, if we have a client from Vancouver, they're virtually always choosing, they're saying, we want the best team in Vancouver. Um, Or, you know, they have been specifically recommended to us because we've worked with other people in Vancouver, and there's like a positive feedback loop with our involvement in the community. Um, And we quite enjoy working with clients in Vancouver because being able to meet face-to-face more easily increases that communication bandwidth. It, it, It makes sort of building that initial trust faster because obviously you do a lot better work if there's mutual trust and everyone understands kind of where everyone is coming from on a project. Um, But uh, the clients that are not in Vancouver, often this sort of entire relationship is a bit different because they're often, they've often have the mentality that they're working with sort of the best team available as opposed to the best team in Vancouver. And so sometimes you get taken more seriously, I guess, from people that are not in Vancouver, which is sort of interesting. I mean, yeah. the face-to-face can offset some of that. But when you have a team in Silicon Valley and they've you know, gone through that process of, okay, we evaluated a bunch of people. We evaluated somebody that was in Silicon Valley. We evaluated somebody that was in Eastern Europe. We evaluated somebody who was in Vancouver or whatever, whatever process they went through, or even just a recommendation that came from, from someone that had worked with us in the past, but that was, you know, outside that Vancouver scene, then it, it starts off that credibility of, okay, this is not just some, just the people who happen to be next door. Um, so there's definitely pros and cons of local work versus the the sort of wider world. 
there is that perception among some clients that having a consultant or a contractor that's local is somehow going to give them more access and a better experience. Can you speak to how those face-to-face meetings um, do help in the process? Yeah, I would say that my personally, the thing that I think is the most beneficial with a, being the face-to-face is that it decreases the number of times where you're having uh, communication that is impacted by, for example, Skype and you not being able to understand everyone properly, or actually in our case, it's more often Google Hangouts. And so you have companies where they'll, it, this is most common for companies in the Valley, and they'll say, well, we have a stand-up at 10 a.m., and it's on Google Hangouts. And if you're going to be working on our app and we're working on the web stuff, and then we want you to be in our in our morning standups. But then they set up the microphone in such a way that we can't really hear them and maybe they can't really hear us. And we obviously like prioritize trying to fix that. Um, but that's just sort of an annoying impediment to clear communication and a bit of frustration for the team that is just not present if people are co-located, if people can either, often actually we find people who are in Vancouver ask for less scheduled communication because they're like, well, worst case scenario, we can meet in person. And then we try to preserve that by being proactively communicating with them and talking on Slack and, and getting, you know, even getting, giving them a call if it's necessary, as opposed to teams that are in the States are more often to say, well, we really want to work with Steam Clock, but we're concerned working with a company that's all the way in Canada that we need to schedule lots of frequent communication over potentially unreliable internet audio channels. Um, and so that's, I would say that's the biggest thing. I, you know, this idea of more access, um, I, I mean, I don't perceive that as being a problem, but I mean, I guess you could survey our, our clients, but I feel like often our, our longest running strong relationships we have with clients are often with um, clients that are in the Bay Area. Um, and maybe that's just an economic thing that, uh, you know, they find, once they find somewhere that they can, that they don't have to pay quite the crazy Bay Area rates, but mm-hmm. can still get world-class development. Maybe that's why we often have the really long-running uh, client relationships with them or or what it is, but or, or also maybe more funding. I'm not sure. Is there ever a feeling amongst Canadian corporations that they rather work with a consulting team that's Canadian as well? For sure, yeah. And like I say, often when we have Canadian um clients, especially Vancouver clients, often they are specifically, either they've come in and said, okay, we wanted to find the best team that we could find in Vancouver, or they'll say, we evaluated some options, but we just weren't comfortable with going to somebody that was not in Vancouver. Sometimes even it's as far as like, oh, okay, well, there was this team in Toronto, which is, if you're not super familiar with Canadian geography, that's like someone in Seattle taking on a a team in Chicago or in New York. Um, It's still the same country, but it's just you know, you're not going to actually probably fly if you don't need to, to go have an in-person meeting unless something's going wrong or you're doing a kickoff or something. So, um, the, definitely there's a preference for that local, uh, pre- preference in Vancouver. And I'm sure that's happening in Silicon Valley as well. Like people who, uh, there's, I'm sure there's a bunch of work that we don't get because there's clients in the Bay area that say, let's find the best Bay area consultancy. And if that consultancy says, okay, well, it's $500 an hour. They're like, okay, well, sure. That's just, the metric with that they're measuring and there's for sometimes especially if they they have co-location they're if they're looking more for a body shop that 
can just augment their team, like send us a programmer who can work in our office, then they have to be co-located. They have to be in the same city as you, as opposed to if you're looking for a product studio where you say, okay, we want to get a high quality app built and here are our goals. And we want someone who has designers and developers and product managers that will make that happen and work with us to to fill our company goals, then it matters less that you're exactly in the same room all the time. This might be a terrible generality question to ask, but is there a difference that you've perceived in business culture amongst our niche of iOS and Mac consultants in Canada versus the United States? So um, is there a different approach when you come into a meeting with a set of American consultants versus a set of Canadian consultants? Um, I've definitely, for sure, found differences in between working with uh, Vancouver versus Silicon Valley businesses, for sure, like for mm-hmm. our clients. Um, I mean, there's all the, like the, the TV show Silicon Valley is funny because it's true, you know, and sometimes we, you know, obviously it's not true, true because it's exaggerations, but sometimes it's not exaggerations. Sometimes it's just, yeah, we have talked to people who thought that way or acted that way. Um, and so as far as the consultants go, I I actually feel my my sense is that the consultancy and general consultancy and independent development actually tends to overlap a fair amount like people who want to control their own destiny I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and so but the iOS community feels to me a little less Silicon Valley centric than some of the other programming communities that I have been involved in and I think part of that is this history of uh, if you go way back to uh, the next era and to before iOS was launched and sort of the Mac development community not being entirely a uh, entirely just financially motivated thing, but having a lot of passion projects and people who just loved either Next or OS 10 or the OS 9 era, uh, you know, companies like Omni and there's a lot of uh, developers in Seattle and like actually a really really strong iOS development community in Seattle, and so. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I feel like there's a less centralization of that community. And also, actually, a big factor, I think, is that in the iOS community, journalists play a bigger role in communication and collaboration around the community uh, compared to, say, in the JavaScript community, which is much more technically centered. Uh, and there's fewer people who are sort of journalists, enthusiasts that are sort of helping weave the narrative and tell stories and, and connect people and stuff like that. And so, and, and journalists are not going to necessarily be Silicon Valley centric. So, um, my sense is that it's not as bad in the iOS community as uh, is, is in some others that uh, sort of naive Silicon Valley is the center of the world mentality. There's people doing great work uh, all over the world. So, Alan, tell us about one project that Steam Clock has done that's been particularly gratifying, that had some uh, really fantastic outcome. And then also, without naming names, tell us about a really challenging project, so, somewhere where there was a disconnect between you and the client, or you ran into technical difficulties, um, something that, that really just didn't end well. Sure. So I'll tell those stories in the opposite order. I'll tell about the hard one, and then okay. <laughs> and then talk about the the successful one because that's the progress of life. Hopefully. Um, so when I was just starting university, um, I guess it was in between when I was working for that that internet provider that I was talking about. Um, mm-hmm. But they were unfortunately a dial up internet provider, so they ended up <laughs> kind of falling by the wayside. And before I started working at the software company that got me through university, I did I started doing some consulting. Just put up a webpage and say people get in touch with me. And this guy from California, I don't know how he found me. Uh, this was long before I had any SEO impound 
juice or anything, but he found my website and he was, I guess, like a former executive at a large Fortune 500 and he had a bit of money, but not very much. And he wanted to have this crazy project idea. And he, I didn't realize at the time, but he was aware that I was this naive kid that didn't know how to estimate projects. And he basically got me to agree to this fixed bid for just very low amount of money to revamp this project that he had uh, acquired open source code for that was some outdated version of PHP. Hmm. And he basically just... That project just had all the things that could go wrong in a project go wrong. Like later, years later, I was in uh, computing science and I had this software engineering textbook that was talking about like, oh, things that can go wrong in a project. It's like all of them happened, like overestimation, scope creep, like miscommunications, not reliably testing, like all the sort of stereotypical things, right? And so, and and uh, that just taught me, it was like this crash course, like taught me all the things that you sort of learn over a long kind of gradual process about, okay, how do you clearly agree on this is what we're going to build? Okay, making sure you have a contract and the contract specifically says what you're responsible for and what you're not. Where are the payment terms? How do you add more scope to the project? You know, which browsers are supported? Like all the things. And so in the end, the crazy thing with that one was that I ended up doing whatever it took to make him happy, which was like, probably five times as much work as was originally agreed upon. It was substantially worse than minimum wage. He ended up still not even paying the whole bill because mm. like, even though he was happy, he ran out of money. And then he was like, well, you know, we didn't do all the features we talked about, but you know, it was pretty good to get most of it. Right. And what am I going to do? I met some kid. I'm not going to sue him, but um, so <laughs> that's kind of extreme. That was like Alan's first, it was like my second project. My first project was like, luckily, I had had one successful project, so I had the, the I could take the pain of the second one, <laughs> um, and so I learned tons from that one. And then many many uh, years later, uh, more recently, a fun one that uh, I quite enjoyed working at Steam Clock um, was we did a, a project that was a client came to us and said, "Can we build or we want you to build a 3D interactive map of the internet?" Hmm. And my initial reaction was, uh, what, I don't know, what does that even mean? But of course, I have to say, yes, that sounds super exciting I, and it, like an interesting challenge. Um, and so let's try to figure it out. And so unlike the previous project where we just sort of agreed to a complete open-ended fixed thing, uh, we said, well, let's do some exploration, let's do some prototyping. And then once we've seen the results from that, let's do some iterative development and build out and see what we can build. And it was for an internet, uh, a service provider that actually was sort of a meta service provider. They're like an ISP for ISPs. And so like backbone communication and how the internet actually work was a big part of their sort of marketing and identity. And so uh, we ended up building this tool that was like an educational tool and it was a marketing thing. And uh, they allowed us to kind of go crazy with the design and the and, and all that kind of stuff. And it ended up being um, getting a huge amount of attention, which was their goal. They wanted press coverage. And so they ended up getting like a CNN piece and Fast Company and Popular Science and like all this media attention around it, which was super fun for me as somebody who had more often worked on kind of more independent stuff and startups. And this was a company with like a, a PR department. So they're getting a bunch of attention and, and we got hundreds of thousands of people downloading it and people all around the world leaving reviews and stuff. So that was a super fun, fun project. And it was fun to just do something, even though most of what we do is more kind of application oriented around uh, getting a job done, but it was fun to do something that was more experimental and kind of uh, pie on the sky, build something crazy. Tell us more about Steam Clock's apps, Party Monster and Wedding DJ. 
So the fact that we have multiple music apps is kind of a another one of those happy coincidences. When we were first starting the company now six or seven years ago, I was getting married. And so I figured, oh, okay, um, let me figure out what kind of software there is for playing music at a wedding. And I had the bad experience a few times of someone saying, oh, hey, you uh, can you just play Here Comes the Bride on my iPod and please don't make a typo and ruin my wedding. Um, and so we'd had the, the, I'd had that experience, which was quite stressful. And so I was like, well, there must be software out there for, uh, kind of automating that and making sure you don't make any mistakes. And there wasn't. Um, so that was the first app that we built was wedding DJ. And that was in the iOS three, iOS four era, uh, just as they were building sort of background audio into, um, the operating system yeah. and, uh, it ended up doing quite well. Um, initially the sales were pretty slow, but then just kind of, it's one of those things that just built over time. And, um, I think some of that is, um, uh, was the rise of Pinterest uh, and people like sharing stuff about weddings and getting the, the idea of the app out there. Um, but it's also just word of mouth is kind of one of those things that accumulates over time. And so uh, that was our the first app that we did and it did quite well. And so we ended up repurposing, you know, once I got married, you only really need a wedding oriented app once. Right. Hopefully. Um, and so we ended up uh, repurposing that to be a general purpose uh, DJ app that fulfilled my my desires for like a road trips and house parties DJ app. Uh, and that was Party Monster. How do you decide to let the team work on the apps instead of working on a contract? Uh, that's a good question. And it's one of the the common huge stumbling blocks for consultant uh, teams and people who are running uh, agencies where um, not that we, we try not to think of ourselves as an agency because that has a bunch of connotations, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, is that uh, the consulting work pays within a month or if you have a longer term contract, it pays on some relatively regularly known uh, time frame, but the exploratory product work pays who knows when, maybe never. And you know, most products fail, so probably never. And so just statistically. And so that's always a sort of mental challenge to say, okay, how, what are we going to set up? What are the incentives and what are the um, dials that we're going to set up so that we're always doing that product development, assuming that that is something important to your business, partially either um, because you want to eventually make money from it or whatever your motivations are. And um, in the early days, it was easy just because it was you know, okay, I was personally passionate about doing it. And so it was just, it was my time I was programming. And so I was just like, all right, well, I'm going to spend a few hours on this thing because I'm burnt out, out on a client project. But as it came further and we started hiring more people, like you say, it has to be specifically allocating. Like these people could be making billable time, but instead we're going to allocate them to work on product. And there's a couple things that have helped a lot. One is uh, specifically having the mentality that it is, sort of fundamental to the way we do work. And so in the early days, it's like, okay, well, we want to do product stuff in order to do, um, to potentially have other sources of revenue and to diversify, which is important. Um, But increasingly also, we've now been thinking of it also as a way to hone our skills, get better at what we do, uh, explore ideas, experiment with technologies that would maybe be too risky to just slap onto some client project that they may or may not understand the trade-offs of. Um, And so that's helped justify in our minds that, that potential loss, like the gap in between what we would make if we build all our time. Um, it's also good for morale for the team, which is good. And that's like retention, which is important to the client stuff as well. So it's that positive feedback loop. Um, and the other thing that's kind of more of a tactical thing is that um, if 
in, in eras where we found that we are so busy that we can't possibly have anyone work on product because everyone is so busy with client work and clients are just like beating down the door and saying, we'll take all the hours you have. We start to learn that that's, that's a signal that our rates are too low. Um, and since in recent years, we've actually settled into like a fairly narrow range of rates that have been stable over time and people have been happy to pay and we have clients renewing for long periods of time, but that we're not so overburdened that it's like a fire hose. But in the early days when we were still figuring that out, it was like a fire hose. Like occasionally we would get clients where we would have three people and they would say, okay, we want all three of you. And we're like, oh, okay. And they're like, okay, we want you to work overtime. We're like, well, we'd have to charge more for overtime. We're like, we don't care. We want all your time. And it should have been obvious then like in retrospect, it's obvious at the time it wasn't obvious. Like, well, if somebody wants an arbitrary amount of, it, of the, what you're selling, that might be a sign that you haven't set the pricing correctly. Uh, and it definitely wasn't sustainable for us. Like if they are wanting arbitrary amounts of, of our time and then not necessarily valuing our time very well. And then also not prioritizing, not wasting our time. And then also we don't have any time to work on, on the product stuff that also is important to us. So um, figuring out where to set your rates such that you are, have a healthy amount of work and you have continually amount of work and importantly that you have clients renewing that they they work with you and they're like that was worthwhile i want more work like that's you know that's a sign that your rates are uh are not too high uh, but high enough that there isn't so much fire hose amount of work that you just can't even do it all and you can't even you know i've heard of people say there's so many sales leads i can't even respond to them you know and i can't even figure out who i should talk to so i'm just ignoring them all it's like well you know <laughs> there's probably value being left on the table there Absolutely. Now, I do want to talk tech a little bit. Uh, you're somebody who's been very deeply in the iOS world for a large number of years, but you've also been really deep in the JavaScript world. And yeah. sometimes those two worlds can kind of be siloed. People who work in iOS or in the Mac uh, kind of look down a little bit on JavaScript, um, and people in, in the web world don't always realize everything that goes into uh, the native app development cycle. But we're starting to see some convergence with things like React Native. So do you see more of this convergence becoming popular in the future, and where do you see the worlds intersecting? Yeah, that's a it's a good, very long-term discussion topic. It's one of those evergreen um, things to be thinking at uh, thinking about and, and talking about. So if you'd asked me in 2008 when I started at Apple whether or not, um, like kind of what the future of native versus web development for mobile apps would be, I mean, when I, actually, that's, you wouldn't have asked me that in 2008 because when I started, the App Store hadn't quite launched yet. So, but when, when the App Store did launch and it was like, the sweet solution is JavaScript apps, right? Um, yeah. Then that kind of is the beginning of this debate about like, okay, you know, do we need these native apps for full performance and being fully using the, the look and feel of the system or, well, the web runs everywhere. And that's something that most people seem to feel like it would resolve itself in two or three years that their side would quote, unquote, win. Yeah. And now we're 10 years later, and it hasn't resolved itself at all. And the big companies have settled into having full development teams native on both platforms uh, that have some web technology get, that gets shared in between the two platforms. And then small, agile, like uh, early stage startups are more often building cross-platform or web-oriented functionality. And everyone sort of is kind of settled into like, hey, maybe actually both of these technologies are pretty good. Um, and that's not necessarily the mentality of any individual person often the individuals are really good at one or the other and so they prefer the one that they are quite good at um, but those two technologies have a, a kind of a continuum a spectrum of 
where sort of native apps are really, really good when you're building something that's performance intensive, where the user experience needs to be really good, where it need, you're, you're competing on that user experience. But think about something like Snapchat, which has an insane user experience, but it's like all doing all these things like those video with real time filters that are turning people's faces into aliens and stuff like the crazy stuff that they're they're doing that even if they were to lose only 10% of their performance or maybe use 50% more memory because they were using um, a sort of more cross-platform uh, development environment, then that would be a, a competitive vulnerability for them, as opposed to something that's like an enterprise app where they're just legally required to have this form be filled out, and it gets filled out by maybe once per employee per year, and they only have a few hundred employees, and it's like, well, don't go crazy and build this beautiful native thing with all these animations, like you're going to bankrupt yourself, do something that makes sense, put it on the web. Web is actually pretty great, it's just not the most, like, Ferrari of user experiences, but it's a good way to to exchange information uh, in the modern age. So I think that my, my experience with both of them has given me a very uh, sort of encompassing uh, mentality on that. And when I see things like React Native, a lot of people, every time there's a new development technology that's supposed to finally solve, like write once, run everywhere, whether it was Java 20 years ago, <laughs> or if it was right. React Native now, or whatever the thing is in 10 years, it's very exciting, because like, wouldn't it be great if there was no compromises? But it turns out like there's always compromises. So evaluate what your needs are, and then pick the tool that fits the needs you have. I mean, it's not like some sort of <laughs> brilliant observation, but uh, I think that's even today still the state of uh, of those tools. So you're not particularly bullish about React Native or about any particular cross-platform JavaScript framework. Um, React Native is definitely the least bad one that we've used, um, mm -hmm. and it is. But I mean, Cordova and PhoneGap back when you know it came around, like there was there was a lot of circumstances where it was the least bad way to build an app, like I say, because you know you just didn't need that sort of totally native experience or you weren't integrating with the system. But like React Native, there's a huge amount of excitement about it. And it's, it's similar, it's more in a vein with something like jQuery where it has broken through the noise of like millions and millions of JavaScript frameworks. Uh, how could you even evaluate one from the other? But React has actually really got quite a lot of mind share. So it's not a blip, it's definitely a movement. Mm -hmm. But in the, there's fundamental, uh, the fundamental way of web technology being uh, standards driven and multi-platform and, and more consensus driven and constantly changing means that the tools that are built on it are also constantly changing, which means that the cool new tool is kind of always going to constantly change as long as web technologies keep changing. And so unlike something where uh, Apple controls the platform and they make the tools and they make everything all work seamlessly together. And so Apple will make the best iOS development environment because they care and they have the money and they control it. Uh, on the web, the best web development tools will always be changing, or at least as long as the web is changing as rapidly as it has been for the last like 10 or 15 years, it's been changing rapidly with almost no pace. Like since Internet Explorer had its kind of stagnancy and then started actually developing again, and then mm -hmm. people could actually build standard based web stuff that uh, those tools have been changing rapidly ever since and basically haven't stopped. And so I don't see a reason for it to stop, but definitely um, it's fun to see the occasional punctuation of things like jQuery or React Native, or uh, there's a brief time where like Backbone JS for anyone who in the crowd, we haven't lost anyone who's not a JavaScript developer, <laughs> but um, that where times where there's something, there's enough consensus around it where it's like, 
not just like a crazy idea, but something that there is enough community around where if you build something, at least you know that there'll be some people out there maintaining things built on this for, for a few years and that it's not some crazy left field thing. And people are building stuff in React Native right now. Like there's hurdles, but there's hurdles with building two entirely different native uh, apps as well. So um, I think that uh, I'm, I'm not... Uh, it's not that I'm not bullish on React Native compared to the alternative previous things, mm-hmm. um, but that I just see it as like part of a con- infinitely turning wheel rather than finally we have now achieved Nirvana. Right, and you brought up the obvious comparison, which is if you're doing something cross-platform, uh, is the the headaches or the hurdles or the challenges of doing a native Android app and a native iOS app uh, outweighed by whatever the challenges are with with something like React Native? How likely as a team? Um, at Steam Clock, are you to use something like React Native uh, versus doing a separate Android and iOS native app? We tend towards doing two separate native apps. And part of that is because we have the staff, like we have staff that knows the native development on each, on each platform. And so because we do, it's a pretty easy tech decision for us to say, well, we can definitely totally do it. And we know there isn't going to be, like, even though there is a big burden of doing the two native apps, mm-hmm. the burden is mostly just cost, right? It's like, we know we can totally execute it. We're not going to hit on something where our tools just derp and like burn a week of time like we've had with React Native sometimes. Like we had one time with React Native where the, the at the time it was some version point whatever and it said, oh, okay, well, right now because mass, the master version release is now broken, you should deploy from master. And so we forked master and we started building on master and then it turned out that there's a bug on master where uh, buttons that only existed on iOS were not clickable unless they also worked on Android. Hmm. So unless it was an Android button, it didn't work on iOS. And that was just like a, a glitch in the in the matrix that was only on Master for like a few hours. And so no one else on the internet was talking about it. But because React Native was so early at that time, and this was actually less than a year ago, so it wasn't like that long ago, that uh, that it was like, oh, you have this problem in just eight like, days of developer time on this crazy thing, just because it's still pretty new. So we, um, we tend towards evaluating, okay, is this a project where user experience and polish and reliability and, and consistency and all those things, is that... Is that what the competitive advantage of this product is? Or is this more of a, okay, we want to get this experience out there in a cost-effective way, and it, and we want it to be the same on both platforms, but we don't really care that much if it's like, does it feel like an iOS app? When iOS 11 comes out, is it going to quickly get the new UI improvements that iOS 11 has? Or is it more important that it's the same between the two platforms? And so we tend to, on any given project, we evaluate those, but the projects we tend to win are the ones that are the ones that care more about UI because we as a firm kind of differentiate ourselves as people who focus on beautiful UI and mm-hmm. transitions and apps that feel good and and product having product management as part of our DNA as opposed to just, okay, design a thing and send us specs. Uh, and so because of that, the people who tend to seek us out tend to come to us with problems that are well-suited to native development, but that doesn't I, I think that that's the reason why we're mostly doing that, not because because we often will say, oh, well, really, for this kind of problem, actually, it would be that it would make sense to use React Native, or sometimes to just not even build an app at all. Like, if you can just build a web page, it doesn't even need to be an app. Like, that can be a really good solution for, especially like a cash draft startup that just needs to like present information to people. Um, so, but it's just, would somebody who has that problem actually end up signing a deal with a company? that focuses on building beautiful iOS native apps, like probably not, but you still need to, as a consultant, not just be saying, what can we build, but also trying to tell people, okay, based on what we know, what is a good solution to the problem that you have? 
even if we aren't the ones that should actually uh, provide it. Yeah, I know that makes a ton of sense. I want to plug your recent appearances on the Clockwise podcast. That was a great episode. And the Release Notes podcast as well. We had Joe Chaplinski on episode 13 of Consult, so everyone should definitely check that out. Um, Is there anything you want to plug? Um, Not in particular. I mean, Deb, you mentioned my blog before, and uh, I think that's always a good um, sort of thing for me to to point out that uh, once a month I write something about technology or making software or uh, anything like that. So... Uh, that's a, definitely something for people to check out. It's just uh, alanpike.com. And how can folks get in touch with you on Twitter or otherwise? Uh, on Twitter, I am apike, A-P-I-K-E. Uh, and then also uh, I have email and other ways to get in touch with me on my website. That's alanpike.com. Uh, and then there's a contact link. Well, Alan, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us at Consult. I think everyone's really going to enjoy it. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, Dave. Thanks for listening. I always love to hear from you. If you have any feedback about the show, tweet me at Dave Kopeck. That's D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. If you want to help out the show, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes or recommend us on Overcast, your podcast player of choice. We'll see you next month.